so grateful. So last week, we started our new uh, sermon series, Imago Day, uh, with a reminder to one another that we're not the good guys. That when we read a passage like Micah 6.8, where it tells us that we are to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly, that we're not on the side of God's prophet with that passage. We're not like the prophets of the Lord who are to take a passage like that and say, oh, isn't this great? Look at all the things that we could tell all the evil and bad people out there. Yeah, you out there, you're the ones that need to act justly. You need to love mercy. You need to walk humbly. And you're not doing that. And that's really bad. Micah 6.8 is not a passage that we can use like a fridge magnet or a bumper sticker to tell everybody else off. I reminded you last week that this passage was given to the people of God. That the issue wasn't with all the injustice that was out there. The issue was with the injustice that was in here. And so Micah 6.8 is not a fridge magnet. It's a prayer mat. It's an invitation for us to get on our knees. To recognize so often that there is injustices that sit in my heart. For so often I, I find it hard to be merciful to the people around me. So often I I find myself finding pride rolling up in me rather than humility to come under God's obedience. And I find myself wanting to forge my own path and do my own things. And as God brings this prophetic challenge to the nation of Israel, it was because God was wanting to draw them back to how he had originally created them to be. The imago day of this series is that Latin phrase from Genesis 1 and 2, the image of God. That when we were created, we were created in his image. And God looks down on Israel and he sees that they're acting in such a way that doesn't show the world God's character at all, but actually shows something completely the opposite. That in the ways they were acting and treating both one another and God and and all the nations around them, they were enslaving, they were unjust, they were proud. And God says, that's not the way I created you to be. So he brings them, he says, what is it that I require of you? I've shown you what it is to be good. I live, eat, drink, breathe the character of justice, and I look at you. You want to know what to do? Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly. God calls them to a new season of remembering what it means to image the glory of God. And part of that process of imaging God is these three things, act justly, love mercy, walk humbly. And what we're going to do over the next three weeks is we're going to take one of those each week and we're going to unpack for you what we think God is saying to us as a church in this season, in this time. And I get the great privilege today of doing that first one, the call to act justly. Now, I want you to notice something straight away. God says through the prophet Micah, not, hey, I want you to think justly. He doesn't say, hey, I want you to have a great theory of justice. He doesn't say, hey, you need to get a really good theology of justice. That's what you need. He says, no, what you need to do is actually act more justly. Your words and your behavior and your lifestyle, the things you do need to mirror and show the character of me in the world. I ask you to act justly. And what we need to remember is that in order to act justly, we do actually need a theology of justice. Like, like if we're really going to walk out what it means to be the character of God and to show His image in the world, surely we need to understand what God's heart for justice actually is. And so what I want to do today with us is I want to unpack the theology of justice. Now that might sound like I'm contradicting what I just said. (laughs) 
that God is calling you to act more justly, and I'm going to spend all my time today giving you a theology of justice. Well, there's a reason for it. Because in order for you to act, you need to understand. And, and I want, I'm actually not going to tell you today at all how you are to practically act more justly. I, I believe profoundly that the Holy Spirit wants to show you how to walk out your faith with fear and trembling. And so as I unpack the theology of justice, as I pull the curtain back, I think, to a little bit of God's heart for justice, my prayer for you as you leave today is not, wow, that was awesome, I had a great time, wow, I learned something about the scriptures and about God, and I understand a little bit more God's heart for justice, and that's great. My prayer is that when you leave here today, you say, I am so blown away by the majesty and the profundity of God's heart to restore all the brokenness in this world. How can I not dedicate my life to living more like that in this context right now? Are you with me? Are you really with me? Okay. The 915 and the 11 were much more with me, by the way. I'm just putting it out there. And it's not a competition. Not a competition. I love you guys. (laughs) To act justly. It's a controversial thing right now. In, in fact, the, the topic of justice is a controversial thing right now. To, to even start to talk in a church context about justice with this American vote that's coming up in the election in just about two weeks' time. To begin to talk about justice when we're sitting in a city right now with the tensions that we have politically. It, it's a controversial thing. And particularly when you begin to think about what justice and and God's heart has to say about the church, which has to say something about politics, and can you bring politics and the church together, and is that allowed? And what about if God has something to say about politics? How does, and we can quickly get ourselves in a perspective and a position where it's so sensitive and so controversial that we actually don't want to talk about it at all. And I've noticed that in this season, a lot of churches around the world right now when there is such a need to be teaching a theology of justice or shying away and just kind of putting that in the too hard basket over there, I want you to know the vine is not going to be one of those churches. We're going we're gonna to open up the scriptures, not just today, but, but over the coming year, because we're desperately in need of being able to connect God's heart for the restoration of brokenness with everything that we're experiencing in our world right now. Now, I want you to hear something, though. I recognize the sensitivities in these topics. And I recognize that we're bringing a lot of emotion individually into this very important topic. And so I want to say a couple of things up front that will be foundational for us. Here's here's the first thing. The vine will always be a place where every single person is welcome to come and attend, where we will never close our doors for any type of person. The vine is committed to being a church where all are welcome, no matter what their political perspectives might be, no matter what they might think about certain areas of justice, no matter what they might think about their lifestyle, everybody is welcome to attend this church. Are you with me still so far? Now, in that, we will also make sure that we do our very best to keep partisan politics out of the pulpit. That partisan politics is where we preach or teach or speak into a specific political party's perspective, okay? We will do our best to keep partisan politics out of the pulpit. But that doesn't mean that we will shy away as a church from trying to help connect church, justice, God's heart, and politics together. We believe that actually there is a beautiful diversity of political perspective and opinion in this room. And I actually think that's a gift right now. 
I think the worst thing we want is just a room full of everybody who thinks and speaks the same way. The beauty is we do have different perspectives of political opinion in this room, and we must be a church that not only celebrates that diversity, but honors one another in that diversity. So that's something else that we're committed to. But here's the other thing. We are absolutely committed to as well being willing to open the scriptures and to preach some hard truths that sometimes we don't want to know about God's heart and God's life for justice and the challenge that that brings for some of our preconceived conceptions of what maybe justice and politics and church and all that might be. That, that we're willing to actually speak that truth in love to us, to wrestle with the scriptures, to do it prayerfully so that we might be able to be a church that respects and celebrates, has this diversity amongst us and yet stays unified through the glory of opening the scriptures and coming around the Bible with one another. Is this making sense with you? Okay, so when we begin to enter into a, a moment like this where I want to unpack the idea of justice, I recognize those sensitivities, those tensions, but I also want to declare that we're a church that's going to be willing to prayerfully, discernfully, and sensitively walk into some of those tensions. Is that all right? If it's not all right, you probably wouldn't be here, so it's great that you're here. Before I get into unpacking for you what I see as God's theology of justice or what I think God's whole heart for justice is. Let me start with a couple of important things that you need to know about justice just foundationally. Here's the first thing. Our ultimate loyalty is always to God and God alone. Come on, church. Our ultimate loyalty is always to God and God alone. That, that in Exodus 20, we see something take place. God brings his people up a mountain, takes Moses up, begins to speak to him about his heart and his law. The very first thing he says, you will have no other God other than me. God creates this thing called covenantal fidelity. I'm in relationship with you. I'm covenanting and promising to be in relationship with you. It's you, me, and no one else. And, and the challenge we have as Christians in the area of pursuing justice, and I would argue a challenge of a church like the Vine that's dedicated to the pursuit of justice, here's our challenge, that we make the pursuit of justice the end game, and we actually, in the process of pursuing justice, forget about the God of justice himself. That we end up making our, our perspective of justice or an issue of justice the main thing, and in making it our main thing, we then forget about the God who's given us this heart for justice in the first place, and there's no quicker path to disunity than when you take Jesus out of the center of something and put something else in. The Bible's got a word for that. It's idolatry. I want to say something to us. If your ultimate loyalty is to a political party, you've become idolatrous. If your ultimate loyalty is to a political position or a political policy, you become an idolatrous. And, and idols in Scripture are, are, are this fascinating thing. They are really good at making promises and really bad at delivering on them. Idols cannot deliver on promises that only God can deliver on. And so as we want to be and seek to be a justice-centered church here in Hong Kong, we need to make sure that in our pursuit of justice, we don't put justice in the center and move God. God and God alone must remain our authority. Amen? Now, when we do that, and as we do that, we can find unity together. Despite our diversities of perspectives, we can find some common ground in unity if Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection remain centered all that we do. So it is God first. Can I get an amen? amen. Here's the challenge, though. If it's God first, I put it to you that you must be a person that pursues justice. 
Come on. We don't get those around the wrong way. It's not like I pursue justice and God is sort of second, as if justice and God and the scales are tipped in the wrong way. But if God is truly first in my life, then I must be committed to pursuing justice because God is someone whose heart for justice pervades throughout the whole scriptures. The whole bringing of Jesus and his death and resurrection is to reverse all of the brokenness and the injustice in the world. If I put God number one, then justice needs to be important to me. And I need to be someone who can begin to really pursue God's heart for justice. Here's the challenge in this. Are you guys still okay? Here's the challenge in this. So often I think as Christians, when we desire to pursue justice, we end up deciding that for us, justice essentially is maybe one, two, or three certain kinds of issues, and we don't worry about anything else. So even me saying today, hey, I'm going to talk to you for half an hour about justice, some of you, all of us, automatically begin to define what that means. So when I say that God is caring about justice, some of you immediately begin to think about the relationship between Hong Kong and China. Or, Or when I speak about justice, some of you immediately begin to think about students and police. When when I think about justice, some of you immediately think about race issues, or you think about the environment. We all have our selective issues when it comes to our passion for justice and our understanding for justice. But here's the challenge to us. We can get ourselves to the point where we become selective in justice rather than actually embracing a holistic approach to justice. Let, Let me put it this way. God is not interested in selective justice. He wants total justice. He wants to see the restoration of all things. He wants to see how all things can fit together and be restored through his son, Jesus Christ. That's the passion of God. And when we make justice about one or two issues, we we begin to kind of think that, oh, well, well, God doesn't really care about this other stuff or, or these other things are not important. But actually what we get called to in Scripture is not to be selective in what we care about. We're called to care about the things that are on God's heart. And here's the thing. The justice issues that are on God's heart don't need to be on our doorstep. The ones that are present to him are so often absent to us. And perhaps one of the the great challenges for us as a church in this era, where we see so much injustice around us, is actually to stop for a moment and not assume that we know what the justice issues are and actually come to God and say, God, what is the full scope of justice that you wish us to pursue? What is the totality of your heart for justice that you would wish your church to pursue? And that doesn't mean I can't have my certain issues I'm passionate about. It doesn't mean that I can't stand on on some things that the Holy Spirit has put on my heart and where he's broken my heart for one or two certain issues. Of course we can have that, but if we make that the totality of God's passion for justice, we've actually missed out on what I think justice truly is. And so what I want to do now in our time together is I want to unpack this wholeness of justice. What is the full scope of God's heart for justice? And and my prayer for us as we do this is as I show you what I think is God's full scope of heart for justice, you will be able to connect that, not just to the issues that you're passionate about, but you'll begin to connect that to how you are to fulfill Micah's call to act more justly in your life. I want to say something that sounds rather grand, but this is really important to me. What I'm about to preach to you is the most important message I will ever preach at the Vine. I'm I'm about to preach the gospel to you. 
and show you the fullness of God's heart for justice. And why this is important and probably the most important thing I'll ever say, because I want you to be a church that represents the whole gospel. That when you hold out the person of Christ in whatever context you might live in, whatever sphere of influence you have, you're like, I know what it is to be someone who acts justly because I understand the scope and the fullness of God's heart for justice. That's my prayer and my passion for you. We're going to do it on here. You need to stay awake. Are you all right? Are you with me? Is everybody okay? Some people are leaving. That's okay. That's all right. Praise God. All right. Let me take you right to where we get an understanding of God's heart for justice. It starts right at the start of all things in creation in Genesis 1 and 2. Now, by the way, I write in tongues. You will need to pray for interpretation. Genesis 1 and 2, what we see there so beautifully right at the start of our scriptures is the creation, of course, of humanity. Humanity is the pinnacle of God's creative efforts. It's the thing that he creates last. We are the the thing that he takes the most pride in. And this is where we get this sermon series uh, title from, this Imago Day. God creates humanity and he declares something. He says, this is image of God. This part of God's creation images me. No other part of God's creation images me like humanity does. Now, scholars have argued for thousands of years what exactly this means. Uh, let me just specifically drill it down to three key areas. To be made in the image of God is to understand that we are unique from all other creative elements in the world, unique in three aspects. First of all, we're unique in how we get to express our spirituality. And we're, we're unique in how we get through that to worship Him. Secondly, we're, we're unique in the, in the fact that we understand right from wrong and morality. And in that, we get to either honor God or dishonor Him. And thirdly, we're, we're completely unique in, in the beautiful idea of it. It's not just about this kind of like, hey, um, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of a worshiper. It's not just about this kind of moral code that we get. We're also unique in creating the future in co-partnership with God. One of the things that God does is he creates us in his image is he says, I want you to be stewards over all of the earth. I want you to, to steward the creation that I've made. And I've created you to understand me in relationship with intimacy with me. And I've created you to understand the good and evil, right and wrong. And it's my perspective of what's right and wrong that I want you now to walk out in creation. I want you to be obedient to my word over you, obedient to the way in which I've structured this world. And in that obedience, through your stewardship, you get to co-partner with me in the flourishing of my creation. That's the great glory and honor and humility of privilege that we get as human beings. And you could argue over the last number of thousands of years how well we've done in that. But we've been invited to co-partner with God in stewarding his creation. Now, Genesis 1 and 2 says that we steward this, that we have this kind of creative ability to partner with God in three specific relational areas. First of all, us with God. Second of all, us with ourselves, how we come to understand who we are. Third, us and others, those people God has placed around us in our lives. And finally, us and creation. And it's really important to see that in Genesis 1 and 2, these four relationship areas are established and humanity is given the privilege of imaging God's character in how it lives within these four relational contexts. Us with God, us with ourselves, us with others, us and creation. And when this goes well, 
when this happens, God declares something over humanity and over his creation. He says, this is shalom. This is what true peace looks like. This is what justice is, if you will. This is the shalom of the world. Shalom being this place of rest. This place where God stands back from those six days of creation. And he goes, this is really good. And on the seventh day, he shaloms with humanity and his creation because it's all working in the stewardship of being made in the image of God with us, God, us and ourselves, us and others, us and creation. And it's beautiful. The end of Genesis 2, it says humanity is naked and unashamed, completely created as they are. No shame, no fear, no bad, no evil, no nothing. This is just as it was always meant to be. Are you still with me? Then we have a problem. The next story we get in Scripture is a story in Genesis 3 where we get introduced, of course, to Satan. Now, I want you to see what Satan does. Satan's very clever. And God had set up all of this instructions for humanity in order to live well. And God had said, here is what it is to understand right and wrong. It's my perception of right and wrong. It's what I've created in the fabric of the world. And you are to be obedient to it. And part of that obedience was, of course, not to eat from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, I want you to see something here, which I think is really interesting, and it will blow your mind. Satan shows up, and he says to Adam and Eve, basically, God is holding out on you. God is not fully disclosing himself. You're called to be naked and unashamed, fully open. God is not being fully open with you. In, in fact, God told you that if you ate that fruit, that you would, you would die? You wouldn't die. Guess what would happen if you ate that fruit? You would become more like him. You would actually become gods yourselves. You would no longer be the image of God. You would actually become gods. And, and I love what, what, what well, I don't love, but I, I see what Satan is doing here. He's saying to humanity, God is not fully disclosing himself to you. He's hiding from you. He's disadvantaging you. Notice this. Satan uses an argument of injustice to create the first act of injustice in the world. This person is holding out on you, disadvantaging you, treating you unfairly. Therefore, you should go and do this. And we know that they chose to sin by taking of that fruit. And in that, they choose to not just be the image of God. They actually decide that they want to be God's. They want to actually have the right to make a decision on morality. They want to be the ones that now define what is right and wrong. They're not just comfortable to allow God to make those decisions and those definitions. They decide that, no, we're going to decide what's right and wrong for ourselves. This is the heart of injustice. Follow this, church. The heart of injustice is that we constantly redefine what is right and wrong so that we gain an advantage over others. We, we start to draw the lines as to what we think is right and wrong so that we can gain an advantage over those around us. This is the idea of self-preservation. And all injustice flows from the concept of self-preservation. We see this straight away when God shows up after they've eaten the fruit and he says to Adam, did you, did you just eat the fruit that I asked you not to? And what does Adam do? He goes, it wasn't me, it was her. That woman that you put here, I didn't even want her. And you put this woman with me, and that woman told me to eat, and I ate of the fruit. 
The very first thing Adam does after he sinned, the very first human act of injustice is the disempowerment of a woman for the empowerment of a man. If you're a woman in here, you should have said amen really loudly then. And that brand of injustice has been carrying on for thousands of years. The very first thing Adam does is he throws his wife under the bus because the heart of injustice is I will preserve myself even at the cost of those closest to me. And in that self-preservation, we see something happen between these four areas over here of these relationships with God, with ourselves, with others, and with creation. Everything that was set up good in Genesis 1 and 2, because of the decision to sin, because of the desire now for self-preservation, there is basically a disruption of all of those relationships. And you can see this later in Genesis 3 yourself. You can work through it in the text. But each of those, one by one, gets completely disrupted by the decision of Adam and Eve to actually decide that they want to define what good and evil is for themselves. And injustice begins. And what you get at the end of Genesis chapter 3 is a complete state of brokenness. Are you still, still here? This is okay. Are you, are you relatively awake? Okay, the story gets better. Out of all of this, there is suddenly a cool. See, here's the beautiful thing about our God. Our God creates the world just as it should be. He creates an environment where humanity is given all of it, can, all of it needs to flourish in these relationships. And yet humanity makes the decision not to. And in humanity's choice to bring sin into the world, they create this injustice which breaks all of these great relationships that were created, but God does not give up on humanity. He could have gone, well, that was a bad experiment. That's gone. (laughs) Let's start again with another world. See, our God is a God who pursues justice. Our God is a God who desires to see the brokenness restored. And so our God comes and he calls, and he calls in Genesis 12. And just, this is fascinating, it was a family, Adam and Eve, that brought the world into sin. So God begins his redemptive process of justice also with a family. He calls Abraham and Sarah. Can't write. He calls Abraham and Sarah. And he calls them and he says, I want you to disassociate yourself from all of this stuff around you. I want you to move away from this nation that you're in. I'm going to take you to a new land. And in that new land, I'm going to completely change everything. I'm going to be your God. I'm going to bless you so that you would be a blessing for all nations. I'm going to pour my spirit and my character in you. I'm going to create the nation of Israel through you. And through that nation, all other nations will be blessed. This nation will become the image of God on the world. It's like, it's like God is saying, we're going to start this again. We're going to do it now through a new nation. And you are going to be called into this new life. Now, this new life is characterized by two primary things that you see throughout the Old Testament in relation to Israel. The first is righteous and the second is justice. These are very common words in the Old Testament. Righteous and justice. And righteousness and justice, they fit together all the time in scriptures. You can see countless examples. Now, righteousness is the idea of tzedakah. Everybody say tzedakah. That's just to keep you awake. All right. Tzedakah is this idea Often when we think of righteousness, we think righteousness is about being pure and holy. Righteousness is about just being the people of God. Righteousness is being a Christian. In in the Old Testament, righteousness 
was actually much more about embracing an ethical standard that enables you to flourish in the relationships around you. Someone who was righteous desired to see the relationships around them flourishing together on God's ethical standards. That was what a righteous person was. Now, this word justice is the word mishpah in Hebrew, and it's primarily meant two things. It meant retributive. In other words, if you did something wrong, let's say you stole something, well, then you have to be held account for what you stole. But it was more often used in another way, and that is the idea of restorative justice. This is the one way that it's actually used the most in the Old Testament. Mishpah was this idea that not only was it enough for me to be righteous, trying to build right relationships in my life, but I also need to be a person of justice, Mishpah. And Mishpah was recognizing that so many people are suffering injustice because of the system of injustice around them. And if I'm going to be not just righteous, but righteous and just, then I need to not just make sure my personal relationships are right, I need to also tear down the systems of injustice that keep people locked in their injustice. I need to work on behalf of not just trying to be a better person. I need to work on behalf of the broken systems and try to actually uh, approach the brokenness of the system and try to put the system right. This is righteousness and justice. Now, let me give you an example of how this all works. The wicked were ones in the Old Testament who were willing to disadvantage the other in order to bring an advantage for themselves. Follow that? The righteous were the ones who were willing to disadvantage themselves for the advantage of others. That's a very important distinction that we see in the Old Testament scriptures. Those that were willing to disadvantage themselves so that the community around them could flourish were seen as righteous and just. Those that were willing to tear down others in order to make themselves better were seen as wicked. This leads to the idea of community preservation. So where, now notice this, this is really important. Notice that in sin, what the, what the enemy Satan does is he creates self-preservation, which is the cornerstone of all injustice. What God does in calling Abraham Sarah is creates community preservation, which is the starting point of the solving and the restoration of all injustice. Still with me? Let me give you an example of this. This happens right next in the biblical story. By the way, isn't it cool to geek out on the Bible? I love this stuff. I could do this for days. But the Exodus story is the story that follows straight after all of these stories. It's just the beginning of the Bible, so much stuff here. But in the Exodus story, it's like God is like, okay, I created it really good. It all got messed up. I'm restarting everything. Now let me show you how this works. In the Exodus story, you see Israel at a point where they are completely oppressed. They're under the slavery, of course, of Egypt. Egypt are the wicked. They're the ones who have disadvantaged Israel for the advantage of themselves. And God is not satisfied with that. And so God, just like he did with Abraham and Sarah, he also once again calls an individual, calls Moses, and God declares his heart of justice to Moses. He says there's three things. First of all, I am compassionate as a God. I have seen the suffering of my people Israel, and I moved in compassion, and I want to come and I want to change the context. Like, like I've seen it. 
I felt it and it's wrong. I see my people not embracing and not living in the way that, that, they, that, that they should. I see the impact of sin and self-preservation on the brokenness of those relationships and I see them crying out under the slavery of their oppressors and my heart is moved. All justice begins from a place of compassion. If you ever try to do justice without compassion, you're just trying to do charity. You're just trying to make yourself feel better. But actually, when we get compassion, we begin to want to truly change things, even being willing to disadvantage ourselves for the advantage of others. The second thing is God declares to Moses that he is going to be an advocate, oh gosh, an advocate on behalf of Israel. This is really important. God doesn't say like, oh, I see your issue. Oh, I feel your issue. He's like, I see your issue. I feel your issue. And I'm going to go. I'm going to use you, Moses, to be my mouthpiece because I have something to say to the Pharaoh. I have something to say to the guy at the top of the whole broken and unjust system. And I want to say some things to him that he needs to hear. I'm going to advocate on behalf of what justice is, on behalf of what it looks like to restore and get back to shalom. I need to speak to the person in charge. I'm going to become an advocate. And out of that advocacy, then what you see happening in in the Exodus story is action. God delivers his people. He brings the plagues. He parts the sea that we sang about earlier. He brings his people to the promised land. God isn't just one who feels an injustice. He's not just the one that then speaks up for an injustice. But he's one who changes things, acts, moves, has power to change the situation itself. And God moves them all the way through in this process of compassion, advocacy, and action. And this is exactly what the prophets then pick up in the rest of the Old Testament story. We often think of the prophets as the people of doom and gloom. It's like, oh, you're going to die. You're all really bad people. But the prophets weren't doom and gloom. They were people of hope. The prophets were actually God's justice advocates. They were the ones who had compassion, advocacy, and action. Micah filled with the Spirit of God, stands over broken Israel, and he can see their injustice. And he stands over them and he says, this is not right. This is not the way you were created to be. You were created to image something of God to the world. Genesis 12, you were blessed to be a blessing to the world, but look at how you're acting. And Micah, out of that compassion for Israel to get back in right relationship with God and right relationship with one another, he speaks out over them. You actually know what is good. God's shown you, act justly, love mercy, walk humbly. It was Micah picking up the the power of God's restorative heart for justice and speaking it over his people and saying, if you don't change, things are not going to go well, but you've got the chance now to change. Now, that all sounds really hopeful, but then in the Old Testament story, we get a problem. And the problem is this, that so often those that are oppressed, when they gain their freedom actually become the oppressors themselves. And one of the things that you see in the life of Israel, in the rest of the Old Testament, after the Exodus narrative, is that the oppressed actually become the oppressors. And during Solomon's reign, the Bible tells us that Solomon had more slaves working to build the temple than there were ever slaves in Egypt. And so here's a nation that's known what it is to be under the wheels of injustice, that's felt oppression at the deepest level. They've been given their freedom from a justice-orientated God, and yet in that freedom, they find themselves doing the very thing that they shouldn't have done. They find themselves self-preserving themselves as a nation. 
gaining their advantage at the disadvantage of those around them. And this is a major issue in Scripture. And what they realized is that there is this thing called a cycle of injustice. And this cycle of injustice means that despite how well we might try at times, we can never fully fix the issue itself. That there seems to be such an entrenchment of sin in the human spirit and in the human life that Israel finds himself constantly trying to do the right thing, but then falling back into injustice, trying to live better, and yet then finally oppressing someone else again. And because this cycle goes on, they, they actually get themselves to the end of the New Testament, uh, Old Testament, and they say, we don't know how to do it. We don't know how to set ourselves free. We don't know how to actually liberate ourselves from this injustice. And instead, what they were doing is just doing band-aid solutions to injustice. And we still do this today. It's like there's a major justice issue, and we just try to like slap a band-aid on it and hope that that solves the issue. And Israel found themselves doing so many band-aids, and then they kept on falling back into that injustice, and then another band-aid, and then back into the injustice, and that cycle continued and continued. They get to the end of the Old Testament, and they begin to realize, hang on a sec, we cannot fix this thing. We can't actually change the scenario. We can't, we can't actually undo all of this. In fact, if there's anyone who could ever undo this, it's never going to be us. It's not going to be our temple. It's not going to be our laws. It's not going to be how well we worship. It's not going to be any of that stuff. In fact, it's only God who's going to be able to step back into this world and bring us back to the place that we were always intended to be. And so towards the end of the Old Testament, Israel is kind of on its tippy toes going, where is this Messiah? Where is this one that can fix this stuff? Because, oh, trust me, I've tried to fix it, but it hasn't worked out. I think the end of the Old Testament, the cry is a little bit like Dietrich Bonhoeffer's cry when he says, it is not good enough for us just to bandage the wounds of victims under the wheels of injustice. We must drive a spoke into the wheel itself. And Israel's going, where is the spoke? And the beautiful thing is that the spoke comes some 400 years later. His name's Jesus. And Jesus becomes this incarnation of God. I love this. This is powerful. See, the incarnation is the idea that Jesus is fully God and fully human. Now, why is that important? Have a look at this. Jesus needed to be fully human because essentially the issue of injustice was an issue that the humanity had created. It was a human issue at its core. But he needed to be fully God because only God would be the one who could drive a spoke into that wheel and break it and change it for good. And so Jesus comes as fully God, fully human, and he becomes the one who truly shows us what compassion is. So much of what Jesus does is because he's moved to do it. The scriptures tell us he was moved in compassion to heal the blind man. He was moved in compassion to sit with the Samaritan woman at the well. He was moved with compassion um, to let the, the, the dumb speak. And then he was an advocate. Jesus comes and he speaks out over the religious rulers of his day, his political rulers, and he speaks out of them. And he says, this is not right. It's not right how you're treating people. It's not right to say that I cannot heal on the Sabbath. You've made your rules more important than the liberation of God. And so he speaks out in advocacy, and then he speaks out also in action. 
Jesus heals, does miracles, changes the situation for people, takes those blind people and lets them see, releases the mouths of the dumb, takes those that are spiritually oppressed and releases the demons from them. I mean, he shows action, which all culminates in the complete work of what he does on the cross of Calvary. And I want you to see this. The cross of Calvary is the greatest example of justice that there has ever been because it is the ultimate example of somebody disadvantaging themselves on behalf of the advantage of others. Jesus stretches out his arms on the cross and takes on the sin of the world and is so willing to even just sacrifice his own life so that you might have eternal life. And so the cross becomes for us this ultimate example of what the righteous and the just are like, what true humanity made in the image of God really looks like, that when we can disadvantage ourselves for the advantage of others, we can begin to see a change, but in our strength, it's never going to work because we're just gonna spiral and spiral because we're so focused in coming back to self-preservation. But here's one who never sinned, therefore never had an inkling towards self-preservation and instead is a community preserver dies on this community's behalf so that we might rise up to be the people of God. That's a theology of justice. Now, let me ask you a question. If I was to say to you, what is the gospel? I wonder what you would say. I I think we mostly would say it like this. Oh, the the gospel. The gospel is that I'm a sinner in need of a savior. The gospel is, is this reality that, that in me is sin and, and that I've done things that have hurt God and hurt myself and hurt others and hurt the world. And, and then I need to come before God because I, I can't fix the brokenness in me. And, and God in his mercy sent Jesus to the world and Jesus lived a sinless life. And Jesus went to the cross and was willing to give his life for mine and took on the punishment of sin that should have been on me and took it onto his shoulders. And, and Jesus died on the cross and paid the price for my sin. And he rose three days later. And in his resurrection, I now know that in my repentance to God, if I come before God and ask him to forgive me, he forgives me of those sins. And in his resurrection to new life, I realize that I get, at the end of all things, a resurrection to eternal life. That's the gospel, isn't it? Yes, no, yes, no. It is the gospel. It's at least part of the gospel because that gospel helps to fix the us and God situation. I'm reconciled now with God. Let me challenge you with this. If the gospel that you believe in only has the power to fix one of the broken situations that the world was created in, I tell you that it's probably not a gospel worth believing in. It's certainly not a gospel that brings shalom. That the gospel that we are to believe in is the one in which when Jesus dies on the cross, yes, he died so that he could reconcile our relationship with God, but it also reconciles our relationships with ourselves. It also reconciles our relationships with others. And guess what? It also even reconciles our relationship with creation. That the gospel of Jesus Christ is that when he gives up his life, he gives it up for the justice and the shalom of the world. Do you want to know what it is to believe in Jesus? 
It's not just to believe that you get a free ticket to heaven when you die and that he's forgiven your sins, as great as that is. It is also to believe that when Jesus died on that cross, he did so for the restoration of all shalom, that the justice heart of God restores not just my brokenness with him, but also my brokenness with myself, my brokenness with others, and the brokenness of creation altogether. And that if we're going to do that, we then see that in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18, it says in there that God, in the resurrection of Jesus, reconciles us all back to God, dealing with that issue. Galatians chapter 4, verse 7 says, because Christ has been raised from the dead, we are now sons and daughters in Him. We have a new identity restoring this. Colossians 3.15 says quite clearly to us that because of the peace of Christ that dwells amongst us now in the resurrection of Christ, we then dwell together as members of the same body. In other words, it reconciles our relationship with one another. And then, of course, Romans chapter 8, verses 19 and 22 say all of creation was groaning for its liberation. And in the resurrection of Christ, Creation is liberated from its state of decay, solving the issue here. So, let me say to you, what does it mean to act justly? To act justly is to realize that because the death and resurrection of Jesus is the only thing that is able to restore all of these things, then my dedication to being someone of justice is not to be selective in my issues, though those issues might be important. It is for me to realize that everything I do needs to be, God, what is broken with my relationship with you? What is broken in my relationship with those around me? What is broken with the relationship with me? And what is broken, Lord, in how I treat the environment and my creation around me? And God, may I be a person who acts justly. By posting something on my social media feed to say something about that issue is not the totality of what it is to act justly. To act justly is to live for the gospel. And it's to realize that the gospel is so much more than my ticket to heaven. When you leave here today, I pray that you will dedicate yourself to living on behalf of this story right here. A story that is only made possible by the death and resurrection of Jesus. And that you, in the profundity of that story, would go, I now want to image God better. May we do that and truly see justice come in our church and around us. Can we, can we pray? Let's pray. Father, we just are grateful for this good news. It's news that's good not just for us, but good for all of your creation. And Father, we thank you that we've seen today what justice is. And we've noticed that so often we have a tendency towards self-preservation, to advantage ourselves at the disadvantage of others. And yet you call us humbly but seriously to a place of repentance before you, where we want to exchange our self-preservation for the desire for community preservation. That we want to be the sons and daughters that you've called us to be, one body unified together. And that while we will always have these certain justice issues that we're passionate about, and that's a good thing. That's one way of expressing your heart for justice, but 
But Father, would you call us to the greater work of walking out the gospel in our lives, to act justly in all four of those broken relational contexts we find ourselves in. Father, I haven't spoken today much on how to do that practically because my belief is that you call each person in this room to walk out their faith in fear and trembling. So I pray that as they have now seen an inspiring picture of a theology of justice, they would leave here today going, I want to live differently. I desire to be more a person of justice than I've ever been before. Lord, help me to act justly. And Lord, we just thank you for this. In Jesus' name. Everyone says, would you stand with me? And we're gonna just close our service by responding in song and worship together as we soak in all of the beauty of what Christ has truly done for us. Let's do that.